Scottish Edge has created almost 2,000 new jobs and we need to scale it up. I was delighted to be involved to help with the funding of Edge. The Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. Good morning and welcome to the Go Radio Business Show with Sir Tom Hunter and Lord Willie Hockey. I'm Donald Martin, editor of The Herald and Herald on Sunday, and your host as we discuss salaries and reward and talk to retail entrepreneur and TV dragon Theo Pafitis. And in the boardroom this week, Tom and Willie answer calls from listeners and provide brilliant business advice. If you have a question or simply want guidance, get in touch by emailing gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk or join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag GoHunterAndHockey. So gentlemen, big day on May the 6th. Not just the Scottish elections, which we'll talk about in a minute, but congratulations on a big birthday for you, Tom. Yes, I've almost got my bus pass, Willie. <laughs> almost, almost. You thought I was much older, Willie, didn't big you? Big milestone, didn't Tom, you, big milestone. <laughs> I definitely thought you were much older. I tell you, you must have had a tough milk run. Very tough, Willie. Oh, we'll move swiftly on from those insults. The Scottish election results are in. I'm not asking you whether you're happy or not, but what should the business priorities be for the new government at Holyrood, Tom? Yeah, I mean, I I really believe that through collaboration we get better decisions, better policy decisions. So I would just say what I've always said, for the people in power in the government to listen to the real job creators like Willie, and others in the Scottish economy who are creating the jobs that are so important, with their advice and guidance, Scotland will come up with better policy decisions and Scotland will prosper. Simple. Willie? Yeah, I think the message again is please, please, please engage with business. We're not saying that you have to do everything that we say, but if you listen, it will probably give you um, a better idea of how you can form policy. And I think, you know, now as the news gets better and better on on COVID, that this would definitely pay big, big dividends if we're all engaged. So it'll be a test to see whether they pick up the phone for either of you in the coming weeks? I'm, I'm sure they'll phone Willie first, but Willie might then phone me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> in the coming weeks it's going to cost me a few quid to phone any of us because I'll be in Palmer <laughs> I'm carrying these bags there as well <laughs> indeed let's switch now to pay and in particular Britain's highest salary of 421 million paid to Denise Coates the boss of Bet365 fair reward or an obscene amount of money Willie I think to anyone seeing those numbers, it's eye-watering and most people on the planet will not understand how someone can get paid so much money. But I'd like to make a point about Denise. I know her dad and uh, I've, I've met Denise a couple of times. On the flip side of that, Denise is the highest personal taxpayer in the whole of the UK. So I would love it if 100 people were getting 420 and paying 220 in taxes. So I would say before people are fast to jump on what Denise has paid, remember that she paid half of that in tax. She's not, she doesn't live in Monaco. She doesn't pay you know, half her tax. And again, all my friends in Monaco, I'm sorry again. <laughs> <laughs> we will not be able to go back there, Willie. I don't oh, think. Definitely not. 
Tom, what's your view of the 421 million? Yes, so I think Willie's dead right here and I love the point about the tax. I read a bit about her, I've, I've never met her, but she was the brains. Her dad had betting shops and she said to her dad, sell those betting shops and she took on a mortgage to get into yeah. the technical side mm. of betting. Yeah. Um, so she's the brains and she's self-made, she's paying her taxes, we need a thousand more like her. Here's another point I'd like to make which is great. 75% of all the revenues are coming from abroad. Right, so that tax that we're getting here is actually coming from money that's been made in, mostly in Asia. Well, at the other end, of course, is the minimum wage. Is it too low or would a commitment to pay the higher living wage be too big a burden for business? Tom? So I think every employer should be striving to get the living wage. Maybe not everybody can get there straight away, but I look to people like um, James at Brewdog. He's, he's set out his stall about his company and paying the living wage and, and paying it in London as well, which is a higher rate. So I think if businesses strive towards it, I understand some can't get there in the short term, but surely that should be one of the goals of business. Willie? Yeah, I think it's, it's difficult depending on which sector you're on. If you if you see people, you know, if you're employing people who are, you know, people would say at the bottom end of the minimum wage, I think it would be great if we had a holistic approach to, you know, the minimum that people should get paid. But, you know, let's just make it law, right, and say here is it, and then everyone has to, you know, that you know, employers will have to look at it. I just think that we, we a scattergun approach I don't think is going to fix it. So I think that, but, but one thing I, I, I do say, people who are working um, all week hard for their wages should not have to receive a handout for the government. So is it better to pay well for the job being done or do you think bonuses in general are a great incentive? Really? Oh, definitely. Um, I think that's the thing that that's makes people jump. Tom used the word earlier, strive. And I think a good bonus system um, for employees is, is, is a great idea. It gives them something to push for. Yeah, I think a, a decent um, salary and then a bonus linked to performance. And now, you know, everybody can argue about what performance is, but, but most people um, know what they've got to do in their companies and we know the good ones and we know the ones who are not striving. <laughs> and um, I'm all for it, definitely. Reward performance. Talking of huge salaries and bonuses, come at a time when the Forbes list of the world's richest people says 86% are richer and had, if you can have this, a good pandemic. Four people are now worth over $100 billion. Tom, is that good or bad? Well, I actually love reading about all these things. And um, if you look at the four people, so you've got Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon, Elon Musk, founder of Tesla, Bernard Arnault, the founder of LVMH, and um, Bill Gates, founder of Microsoft. So they're all worth personally over $100 billion, And that's Bill Gates after he has given over $36 billion the charity. <laughs> so that's really impressive. Now, as as one number, you would think that's inequitable. But every one of those people 
are self-made. Every one of them started with nothing. I'm not quite sure about Bernard Arnault if he inherited any of that, Willie, but, but the Americans started with nothing. They have created hundreds of thousands of jobs and well-paid jobs. They have paid their taxes and therefore that actually inspires me. It does. And the interesting thing about the the Forbes list was the country that's added the most billionaires in the past year is communist China. <laughs> They're not communists at all. <laughs> Willie? Yeah, and it'll be a shame for them when the government catches up with the rest of them. <laughs> the way that they've picked on the high-profile ones at the moment. Um, I think, as Tom said, that... Um, these are numbers and these are titles. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure some of these guys don't like these titles. Um, I, I'm more impressed with the jobs they've created, how hard they're trying to give back. Um, I, I don't know about Elon Musk, but certainly the other three gentlemen have given huge amounts of money back. I, I read a story three weeks ago that, that Jeff Bezos, uh, his ex-wife, has given half of the billions that she's been given already in the settlement. She's she given has, nearly yeah. nine billion to charity. And it's great. She she you know she set up a whole team of people and she gave it to hundreds of charities. She didn't but some of them would get eight, nine, ten million dollars. That's great. So it's amazing. McKenzie. So a lot of this money ends up back. And I'm sure you now we mentioned Denise Coates earlier, I'm sure that Denise will do loads of philanthropic stuff. And I think really that Forbes should do more on that than they should do on just the, the, the big numbers about what they're worth. Yeah, the, the um, Sunday Times um, is the rich list as well, but um, they'll be celebrating 20 years of the giving list, Willie, um, coming out in May, and um, we we kind of encouraged them to look at people who were giving to charity as well. So it'll be 20 years of the giving list. So I find it inspirational and you know, Bill Gates is my living hero in this because he's committed through the Giving Pledge to giving most of his wealth um, to charity while he's still here. In terms of pay and bonuses, what's been the best incentive you've ever offered or been offered? Don, the best incentive I ever had is when I got the first contract with ASDA when we were given 20% of the country to do and the incentive was that the five companies that were operating across the UK that there would be a league table and at the end of a two year period the the company that came out top would get the whole country so that meant there was £5 million a year turnover we asked there would potentially go to £30 million, and I would say that that's the thing that transformed my whole company f over the next 20 odd years Fantastic wow. Tom? So some of the things we used to do when we were in retail and sports division was a thing called God of the Week. And it comes back to a book we talked about in a previous show, The One Minute Manager. So every Monday in retail, you got your team together, my top team. And um, I wanted to make sure, because we we're in retail, I didn't want head office to be seen as the this ivory tower. So I said, right, God of the Week, every one of the directors had to come with someone in their department who did something above and beyond what was asked of them. And what they would get would be my car and my driver would take them and their partner out to a restaurant of their choice. Um, but more important, it made these directors go and catch people doing something right. A lot of management's, oh, well, I, that's that's not right. That's not, catch people doing something right. 
and then thank them. So what we used to do is, if it was somebody either in the warehouse or the head office, I took my directors and we all went to their desk and say it was you, Donald, and I would come, we'd all get round and everybody would be looking and I would literally get down and kiss your feet. Kiss your feet and say, thank you, Donald. You come in and you spent, you were late in the office the other night, you saved the company 10 grand, thank you so much, you can, you're now the God of the week, you get parking right right at the front door, usually my space, but you had it, and you could take the car and the driver and go and have a meal. And we would folk go to a McDonald's drive through with the Rolls Royce. <laughs> and that was just saying, my directors are not out of touch. We really appreciate if you're going above and beyond for the company, thank you. Great. Willie? With the prospect of Tam company kiss your feet, <laughs> I bet you 7,499 people were delighted that they weren't the God of the Week. <laughs> there was a similar scheme in, uh, in Asda where um, the MD Alan Layton had a, an old Jaguar and they were going to get rid of it. And for the employee of the week, you got the car for a week. And also, the biggest perk that you could get was that as they had 900 people that worked in the building that had 300 car parking spaces, you could never get a car parking space. So the employee of the week got the golden cone. So you get a parking <laughs> space right beside the door of Asda House. So, and a similar theme that Tom's talking about, yeah, I've seen some of that at Asda. It's certainly a lot better than... Back in the days when one MD offered my reporters a Mars bar a week for the best story. <laughs> it's probably too polite to tell you what I thought he could do with his Mars bar. Helps you work rest and play. Was it deep fried? <laughs> <laughs> now in the latest of our series on Great Scots, we tell the story of Baxter's. Be different, be better. Those were the words of George Baxter, encapsulating such a simple principle, yet laying the foundations of a Scottish family business spanning four generations. The Baxter story began in 1868. 25-year-old George Baxter had been working as a gardener for the Duke of Richmond and Gordon on the Gordon Castle estate when he decided to start his own grocery business. George borrowed £100 from family members and the shop soon opened in the village of Fockabers. In the back of the shop, George's wife Margaret began making jams and jellies with fruits from the local area. They were an instant hit with the Duke and his guests and ensured the Baxter's delicious products quickly found their way to the top table at Gordon Castle. In 1916, Baxter's well and truly became a family business. George and Margaret's son, William, bought land from the aforementioned Duke and together with his wife Ethel, built Baxter's first factory. While Ethel created an exceptional range of jams, William would travel by bicycle and train to market Baxter's products the length and breadth of Scotland. In 1929, Baxter's began to focus heavily on soups. Inspired by endless availability of fine local produce, Ethel Baxter began creating a range of high-quality soups, including the original recipe for the now-famous Royal Game Soup, with venison from the hills of Upper Speyside. High-end stores such as Harrods and Fortnum & Mason's soon became loyal customers. Another turning point in the Baxter story is when talented artist and cook Ina Baxter joined the family business, who alongside husband Gordon created a popular new range of Scottish soups based on traditional recipes, including cockaliki, scotch broth and chicken broth. It was at this time that the foundations for the present-day Baxter's enterprise would be well and truly set. 
Over the years, Baxter's commitment to innovation has played a crucial part in achieving success across the globe. In 1992, George's daughter Audrey took over the reins, and today, Audrey and her team run a company of which her great-grandparents could have never dreamed of. The sheer scale of the operation, and the science and technology that underlies it, may be far removed from the little village shop in Fochabers, but the ethos remains the same. Be different, be better. Great Scots on the Go Radio Business Show. What another amazing Great Scott, Willie. We, we just keep coming up with them. So, a grocery shop, there's a theme coming through all this, Willie. Yeah. And Fockabers. I've always wanted to say Fockabers on the radio. So, there we go. But I, I actually met Gordon and Ina Baxter. So, once we had um, made a few quid at Sports Division, Mary and I booked a holiday to Barbados. And this was the time that Concord flew to Barbados. So Mary and I got on our shell suits and our white socks and got on Concord. And while we were in the departure lounge, I said to Mary, that's Gordon Baxter over there. And she went, oh, go and speak to him. I went, no, no, no. Because my dad had told me all about Baxter's and Gordon Baxter. And anyway, we get to the Sandy Lane and we're checked in. So I'm on the beach with my shell suit still, really. And... Um, Gordon Baxter was sitting and I thought, I'm going to go over and speak to him. Because his wee jams, the wee pots of jams were sold, are on display in the Sandy Lane. And I went over to speak to him and I was a bit nervous. And he sat and talked to me for an hour, Willie, and it was brilliant. Amazing. He was totally brilliant. I, I, I loved it when, when they, uh, the story of Johnny Walker and the story of Baxter's, the one thing that they were both brought up was their marketing. Aye. And it was so simple. And when I travel around the world, I'm amazed that you still see you see Baxter signs everywhere. You know, you see it's still there as, as this iconic brand. So from a, a village in Fockabers to a world global band. And it's amazing the people we've been talking about over the last few weeks all started in around about the same era. I know. You know towards the, yeah. the end, you know, uh, 1880s, 1860s, and, and today they're still thriving businesses. So I think, and, and here's an interesting fact for you, in, in from not about, not about <coughs> uh, Baxter's, and from 1910 to 1920, 10 of the largest companies in the world went bust. They're wow. bust today. Right, uh -huh. and all of these brands, Scottish brands, made way back then. Right, even before that, have still lasted the test of time. So that tells you. So if you have a product, if you have a brand, just as I said, you know, before, if you're good and your product is good, then there certainly will be longevity behind your business. And I think that this is another great example. I, I seen an interesting program a few weeks ago where it was showing you memorabilia marketing memorabilia and you would not have believed the amount of uh, tin signs uh, advertising Baxter's from the 20s and 30s and 40s right? and the prices that they were commanding today <laughs> so I'm sure that the you know the, the, the people who started Baxter's way back then would be very very proud that just their name on a bit of tin was raising thousands and thousands of pounds <laughs> yeah and, and good luck to Audrey Baxter who yeah. leads the business now and it goes from strength to strength it's, another brilliant story yeah fantastic well talk 
talking of great products coming up after the break. We'll be chatting to TV dragon and retail entrepreneur Theo Pafitis. Don't forget, if you want to be part of the board you can't afford, you can put your questions to Tom and Willie by emailing gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk or join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag GoHunterAndHockey. This is the Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. Supporting the lifeblood of the Scottish economy. Welcome back as we are joined by the brilliant retail entrepreneur Theo Pafetis, owner of Bow Avenue, Ryman Stationery and home and garden retailer Robert Dias. And of course, a TV dragon. If you want business advice or have a question for Tom and Willie, you can email us at gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk or join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag GoHunterAndHockey. Welcome to the show, Theo. Uh, hello. A pleasure to be here. Nice to see you, Theo. Thank you for coming on this morning to Go Radio. Thomas, always a, always a pleasure to talk to you. Ah, right. Theo, it's, it's Willie here. Thank you very much for joining us this morning. Willie, good to meet you uh, virtually by the phone. Yeah. I've heard, I've heard absolutely lots about you from Tom. <laughs> and uh, I've not had the time to research it all in fairness, Willie, but uh, so I'm taking it all as being absolutely true, which is, which, which, which is amazing which, because you're still a free man. So, um... <laughs> Thank you for that. He's not a Freemason right <laughs> enough, but anyway, that's, that's, oh, a different, that's another, different, that's a another story. Theo, you've built a business empire around buying and reviving retail brands. How do you see the future of the high street? Wow, that's a big old question. It's varied and has got lots of moving parts. So it's not just a binary black and white answer. We can talk about this for absolutely forever. But there's one key thing that the government needs to do really sharpish as a catalyst to all the other things happening. And that is the removal of the most archaic, ridiculous tax in the world. And that's the business rates, which is absolutely killing physical retail. Well, I think probably, Tom, do you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, Theo and I have discussed this. Thankfully, I don't have any shops in the high street anymore. I was very lucky. But um, this is a case where business has moved on and the legislation is in the Victorian ages. So let's get it sorted. Thomas, it's way before that. It's 1500s. That legislation was drafted in 1500s. And uh, that the whole idea was called the poor tax. And it was getting the wealthy shopkeepers that was considered to give free food and free things to yeah. the, the real poor people. I and, know that, um, yeah. yeah, it is. And now, of course, we've still got it. And ye old internet, surprisingly, did not exist in the 1500s. No. Uh, and now it accounts for nearly half of all trade. Yeah. So on that basis, you can't have half of the trade not being taxed and the other half just piling on tax onto them as they reach the law diminishing returns. So silly tax needs to be reformed. Someone's got to pull their finger out. Theo, could I just ask you, because I know you speak to government in Westminster, are they listening? But more importantly, <laughs> are they understanding or are they going to act? Well, they always say they're listening. You know that. Um, but it's whether they, you know, it's the actions speak louder than words, as we all, all know. Um, I, I was impressed uh, this time round on the budget with the Chancellor. I think he's quite an impressive Chancellor all round. Uh, he, he has probably taken more decisions than any other Chancellor in my li- lifetime. Um, bold decisions. And 
he did listen about business rates where he deferred, he gave a further three months holiday for business rates and then two thirds for the rest of the year. So again, he gets it, he understands. Now, the big question is, have they got the intellect and the ability and the will, more importantly, to do something about it permanently, which is something the previous chancellors and governments have not, because it takes, it, they don't see where they're going to get the, the benefit for it, for all the work they're going to have to put in, because they're unlikely to be in, in office. So they do other things, like decorate their flats and all sorts of things. <laughs> I, I can also say that this just doesn't affect retail. I have a small hotel, Theo, and uh, the way that the business rates work in Scotland, I don't know if it's in England, is when you get the property revalued, they get an assessment done by the government. And it's just a small hotel, but I employ about 47 people full-time. Uh, and when they'd done the reassessment of the property and they sent me the new demand for the tax, this was about two years ago, I actually had to think long and hard about closing the hotel down. It was actually borderline with the increase in the valuation, but when it, when I sat down and I discussed this, my, my sister-in-law actually runs the hotel that we just couldn't see 47 people losing their jobs, mm. but that's how critical that the increase. So I totally agree with you. They have to look at this and, and, and tax should be based on profits, right? Not in values yeah. of property. Is that no, how you no. see it, Theo? Where we do oh, tax? I, I, absolutely. I can live. Listen, I can live with a turnover tax if it was sensible and someone did, really did the work. But the easiest thing, of course, is to tax people on the profits they make. But more importantly, to make sure people show their profits. And the reason I mentioned turnover and sales tax is purely because some organisations that are not are doing big business in the UK, taking those big swathes of the UK retail economy and contributing little to nothing in taxation and because they're registered outside this country. That has got to stop and someone's got to do something about it. Here, here. Yes, we totally agree. And if you were a startup or scale-up business listening in today, Theo, what advice would you give them? Um, well, it's an exciting time because we've got loads of disruption and there's always opportunity when there's disruption. And this is one of the most disruptive periods I've ever lived through. <laughs> I'm sure Tom and Willie would agree. Yes, we've sir. never, you know, we, we were very fortunate, um, unlike our parents who lived through several wars. We haven't experienced anything like that. And I could only kin it to something like the disruption you face when the world was coming to an end in a war. So there is opportunity. There's loads of crumbs of big companies' tables that are falling down. There's lots of big companies that weren't geared up for it who are leaving lots of opportunity for smaller, more agile entrepreneurs to actually move in. Yeah, I think the conversation, uh, you know, in the future will be when you're arguing with your dad saying you live through a war, say I live through three recessions, a financial crash and a COVID pandemic. (laughs) And I've lost all my hair, Theo. Well, I think that's all of us. I think I've got a picture of Willie and I think he's, I don't know how old this picture is, uh, and it looks like he might have a little bit of thatch on his barnet still, Tom. <laughs> yes. um, it does his, it's amazing what you can do in Turkey these days, Theo. <laughs> Theo, you're obviously famous as an investor on the BBC's Dragon's Den and you were on for nine series. So what makes a good business pitch and what makes a bad one? 
Well, I think you start from the basis of what makes a good person to back as opposed to the pitch. Because I've backed some goddamn awful pitches, right? <laughs> um, and we've gone on to do quite well. And I've backed some some really brilliant pitches where the people have been wrong and we've not done so well. So for me, very much now is on the individual or whoever the individuals might be and how they, how I assess their ability to follow through with a business plan and deliver. So that's been key for me. Yeah. So, so Theo, let me ask you, would you back Duncan Ballantyne or Peter Jones on neither? Oh, that's outrageous. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my word. Thomas, I didn't see that one coming uh, at all. Right, come on, answer the question. I'll question. give you an easier one because you're not going to answer that. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And I've got to tell you, there would both be bloody nightmare right <laughs> <laughs> well would you have backed yourself when you were 16 leaving school with no qualifications I, I I honestly think I would because I've backed similar people um and I look for that enthusiasm that passion that sparkle in the eye that will even the even I'm prepared to see through the greenness and 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 the the experience and say well will that person pick it up quickly. Can they actually get over those hurdles of learning about the things that they don't know? Do they, are they aware that they don't know? That's the other point. Do they know what they don't know? So I think the answer is I would, and a few people on the way did. So definitely, even though I don't look at someone and say, oh, he or she has got a university degree or got five A-levels. Uh, that's, you know, I look at somebody for the job and can they live that job, irrespective of age, um, sex, creed, colour, religion, you name it, can they do that job? Really? Yeah, it's amazing that all the weeks, we've had every single entrepreneur, every every investor, anyone we've ever spoke to say the exact same things, right? It's about that spark, it's about that hunger, it's about that passion. So it's great if you've got all that and you're slick at presenting, then it's fantastic, right? Some people can see through people who are maybe nervous, lack of experience, but when you see that they have got the get up and go and that never say die attitude, I think that's what any investors are looking for and I think you know Theo has, has summed it up perfectly for what you look what you're looking for for the perfect investment. Yeah. Well you're you're Chancellor of Solent University, so I'll link it in. Is our education system fit for purpose to create entrepreneurs like yourself? Well it's becoming more fit the, the straightforward answer not quite yet, right? I think we are becoming more aware about entrepreneurialism and certainly in my life I've seen massive changes where you know you can actually do an entrepreneurial degree now and you can learn at university and at the end of it during university you start a business and at the end of it you've got your own business to run so I think we're we're beginning to understand that academia is required it's brilliant of course we need academic individuals to do some academic jobs but we also need entrepreneurial people people that can actually see opportunities can drive through and make things happen i have a i have a sense uh, of what can happen if you actually take various steps take those calculated risks and that's my big my biggest bone is about that risk taking we're appalling in this country if someone takes a risk, calculates it or otherwise, and they fall on their backside, 
right? We just look down on them. In some countries, they, they applaud it and say, right, get back up. You've got to do it next time round. Most entrepreneurs don't make their money on their first gig, right? Yeah. It's second or yeah. third or fourth, and they learn on the way. If they can, 50% failed in the first two years, right? So if we can change that stats, that 50 don't fail in the first two years by giving better education, better training, better mentoring, better opportunities for them to learn without having to fail first, I think that will give a massive boost to the British economy. Yeah, I totally agree, Theo. I mean, when we're looking to back someone, one of the first questions we ask is, tell us about a failure that you've had. And if they say, oh, I haven't had any, they're either a liar or we say, go and have a failure and come back and see us because it's part of the route to success. And we shouldn't we shouldn't decry people just because they've had a few failures. We've all had failures. We've all had failures. Yeah, really? I think um, using the you know local Glasgow vernacular, if you want to get ahead, you better prepare to go ahead. Yeah. Right, and, and don't be afraid to fail. Well, talking of possibly big challenges, surely it doesn't come any tougher for you, Theo, than your eight years as Millwall chairman? Oh, amazing time, amazing time. <laughs> well, you did have some success, I have to say. Listen, um, I was a young man. I, was, I hadn't reached my 40s yet. Uh, I took over as chairman. I had some experience of football, having been involved in non-league football for a long time beforehand. Had already made that commitment that I would never get involved with a a professional football club because it's a mugs it's a mugs game I mean uh, you, you'll find it on record um, there I was sitting in front of um, Her Majesty's press cameras flashing in my uh, best suit uh, announcing that I've just taken over uh, Millwall Football Club and then I dropped one straight away <laughs> in my first interview this is this is this is first interview quite nervous because I hadn't, I hadn't done any media training or been involved in media at all and uh, there was a man from the uh, the, uh, the Soraway Sun newspaper he said um, Mr. Mephitis he says uh you own rhyming a station. As he says, uh, can you please tell us what, what has running a stationary business got in common with um, football? And I'm very quick on my feet sometimes, sometimes far too quick. And I came out with, well, that's obvious what they've got in common. Brown envelopes. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh dear that's certainly oh, dear, a few headlines in Hello, that did it go downhill from there from there on in Theo <laughs> I, I, did, I, I did learn some, I did learn not to talk to the press after a game oh we're not we're not that bad surely <laughs> no no, it, no it's not about what the press say it's what I say <laughs> <laughs> Willie Theo it would have sounded much worse if you'd just taken over the local council, to be fair. <laughs> that was the statement you made. Right. But I would say to you, in my time in football as well, and I've said this to people and I've said it on record, um, it's the only business in the world where you can't build on success. <laughs> right. Every time you do something good, everybody raises the bar. <laughs> yeah. They all want more money. Every yeah. time you yeah. you raise more money, the yeah. more sponsorship, more game, they all want more money. And that's that and that's why those clowns that that, that, that started this supposed Super League, which yeah. I, I'm in, I said on Twitter straight away, it's nonsense. No, it, it can't happen. It can't go through. This yeah. is the act of desperate individuals yeah. who have mismanaged their football clubs. Absolutely. And it happens all the time. It's yeah. happened in all my time in football. Yeah. All these breakaways have been led by people who have 
absolutely screwed up their football clubs. Theo, I'll have a bet with you. I bet you all your successes in business, all the years, I'll bet you get more column inches than your time in Millwall and all the rest put together. <laughs> uh, sadly, you're correct. <laughs> well, aside from football and your 40 years in retail, what do you consider to be your biggest achievement? Um, listen, uh, I grew up with a single parent in a council block, a really horrible place with no lift and lots of vomit and we in the, in the, in the, um, on the staircases, you know, there, there wasn't a lot to go for on that. So for me, while I was a confident individual, like lots of confident individuals, I was dyslexic. So academia wasn't there. I was also quite shy because of my ambitions outweighed my, my, the reality of my life. And that's always a difficult thing. So I, I think my biggest achievement was my family in the first instance. Uh, and I'm not saying that because it's the right thing to say. That's always been, a, a, for me, a strong thing, a, a solid family base in which to do what I do and to have the support. So when I go home, I'm not Theopathetes, the dragon Oh, Theopathetes, successful businessman. And Theopathetes, the husband, the dad, the granddad, uh, who will get treated accordingly by their kids and their grandkids and their wife and feet firmly on the ground. That gave me a great base to be confident, but also respectful and understanding of everything I do and the consequences of what I do. How long have you been married to, to Debbie, Theo? Uh, it feels like 132,000 years. <laughs> um, All right, okay. But, but it, it's uh, 40, 40 odd years, 44 years, something like that. I've lost count, mate, honestly. I just, you must know that it's, number. It's uh, 1978. 1978. For, 43 years this year, I can tell you, with a yeah. degree of confidence, exact same time I got married. Ah, well, that was excellent. Yeah. Well done. I think, Theo, we're all blessed, Willie, yourself, and I, we're all blessed with the love of a good woman and keep our feet firmly in the ground. Yeah, and, and she can throw a frying pan. I've got to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> I really thought she could throw, she's quieting down a lot now, but she can throw a frying pan. <laughs> Are there any key characteristics or traits that you you think have made you so successful? Only the same ones I've mentioned before and I keep talking to other people. But, you know, I, I use that when people say, Mr. Buffett, what do you think I should do with my life? What career path should I go down? And I, and I often say to them, look, guys, you, first thing you've got to find is your passion. What is it you want to do? It's you work for a long time in your life. You do it for a lot of the time. So do something you're passionate about because if you're passionate about something, you're likely to be good at it because when you hit those hard times, those dark days, you know, where you've got to lift yourself up by your bootstraps or things that haven't worked out, you don't want to throw the towel in. You're going to have a passion and desire. And that for me is fine. I said that to my kids as well. Find that passion. Brilliant advice. But what's been the best advice you've been given? Oh, my God. Uh, you know, don't really, don't not, buy I'm, Millwall. I'm, How do you dodge yeah. a frying pan? <laughs> I, have, I, have, I have been given lots of advice I haven't taken. Uh, like most entrepreneurs. So just from Tom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He never listens to me, don't worry. Lots of advice I've, 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 I've not taken. Lots of advice I have taken. But I, I think the reality in business is cash flow. And, you know, and I know it sounds, it's, it's a quite a technical one, the difference between profit and the difference between cash flow. And lots of people don't, don't, still don't understand that. You know, a lack of profit 
is like a cancer. It will kill you off slowly. A lack of cash flow is a heart attack. If you can't pay the bills at the end of the month, pay the wages, pay the rent, pay whatever, you're dead, you're out of business. That is something, um, Theo, on this show we talk about all the time. Understand your cash. Every successful entrepreneur I've ever met understands cash. Absolutely. Especially over the last 12 months. And Monk, I can tell you, yeah. we have, you know, we have been, our businesses have been under the cosh so severely that it's all about, everything is about cash flow. Yeah. That's the biggest focus that we've had to get through this pandemic. 100% agree. I've got to ask you, Theo, what was the most memorable pitch you received as a TV dragon? And what was your most successful investment? Okay, these are questions obviously I constantly uh, asked and, and I constantly avoid saying, giving an answer to. Uh, but the most best investment I made coming out of the den wasn't quite a pitch in the den. It was a pitch outside the den by somebody that was a dragon in the den. Um, <laughs> Name names, where, come on. Yeah, so basically, um, my very first year series on Dragon's Den, we recorded this and it was quite painful because it was my first time and trying to sit there with... It was it was series two. So series one had taken place, had chased some people over, stuck me in, and I had four experienced dragons and me. So it was quite painful. But there was a lady called Rachel Elner who had a company called Red Letter Days. Oh, yeah. Um, and after we finished filming that series, series two, and it wasn't commissioned for series three by then, she went spectacularly bankrupt. Oh. So I'm not sure if she personally went bankrupt. I'll tell you that back, but the business went bust. And I, myself and a tall fella actually bought it from the receiver. Right, um, and and one of one of our one of the reasons we bought it was to save the show. Uh, I'm sure that was in the back of our minds at the time because it hadn't been recommissioned, and one of the dragons had, had lost her business. But also, we thought it was a really great business, so we we invested several hundred thousand quid each, and we sold it for many many tens of millions. Wow. Uh, quite a few years later, right? So. We, we, we actually, that was the investment that came out of the den that made more money than any other. But it wasn't an actual pitch. But if you talk about impressive, there's lots of impressive pitches. But I stopped after series three just looking at impressive pitches. I started to understand. I started to understand that the, you know, the right people were the key thing. And I just, I have a nervous. I invested in um, Neil Westwood, who was... Uh, magic whiteboard. Oh yeah, uh, was a, it was a basically a statically charged piece of cling film, a beige, <laughs> a, a white statically charged piece of cling film that you stick to the wall and write on, and like a like a magic whiteboard. And Neil and his wife uh, gave a presentation. Tall fella stood up straight away. It was great making television. Tall fella, so I straight away <laughs> got a pen and wrote, "I am." Out on the magic whiteboard. <laughs> yeah, brilliant thought, TV you, indeed. You, you miserable git. I thought, right. You know, slowly everybody pulled, everybody went out. Peter led it, everybody went out. It was very early doors. I think it was Deborah's first series. It was it, Everybody went out and it was just Deborah who was finding, finding her feet and me. And, and I d didn't know her very well. I think it was probably second or third week. Didn't know her very well. Uh, but just, I could see she was hugely bright and capable. 
And uh, I thought, I'll just wait for her to uh, follow the lead. To trip up. <laughs> yeah, for, yeah. I'll wait for her to follow the lead of all the others. And, and then I, I fancy this one. If, she, she, she wouldn't say she was out. So, <laughs> so I'm, I'm sort of whispering to her, you have to say I'm out, you know, off camera. She looked at me as if say, are you mad? The camera goes back onto her. So I'm waiting for those magic words to say she's out. She says nothing. I thought she's either incredibly dumb or <laughs> incredibly bloody good. Um, so um, Peter, on the other hand, now is getting really heads up because we're an hour and a half into the pitch. Um, he went out in five minutes. He's been sitting there and he's been moving from one buttock to the other buttock, backwards and forwards, <laughs> saying, come on, come on, for goodness sake, that's my lunch. I'm a very important man, you know. So so uh, myself and Debra just carried on, and neither of us would, would give in. So eventually, three hours later, wow, right, myself and Debra decided to share this investment. Oh. Right? And I've got to tell you, Peter's face was like, though he's a great friend of mine, was absolutely <laughs> red. Right, and he couldn't believe that we would make him because it's so important that we can make him <laughs> sit there, especially with with Deborah, who'd only just joined. Obviously, hadn't re- recognised the pecking order in his head, yeah. and uh, and that was a great investment. As it turned out, this wasn't an invention. He was just buying the thing in and marketing it. He was doing something better than other people. And myself and Deborah had dividends out of that business over a six-year period, way in excess of what we put in. And then Neil did so well and his wife that they actually bought us out for about six times our money. So, And I bet you never mentioned that to Peter Jones. <laughs> oh, well, he, he regrets it to this day, but he said he was just breaking us in. All right, yeah. okay. I think he was actually disappointed that you were getting more camera time than him. <laughs> that's exactly it. And of course, but he did have his own makeup artist compared to the rest of us. So, <laughs> so post-pandemic, which areas should people look to invest in? Well, obviously... the. It, Data just uh, and digital is just such a, a big business now. The, 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 there's growth, there's a market demand for all these things, and it's where the things that are going to make you rich probably haven't been invented yet, or you don't know about it because that's how fast it's moving. So it's definitely an area that is, I would say, possibly high risk, but massive reward. Um, if you get it right. Um, Theo, can I ask you one, one last question? Why did you give up Dragon's Den? Um, I, I did it for nine odd years, uh, Tom. And like everything else, you know, I, I, I felt I was getting stale. And the BBC were brilliant. They tried to persuade me to uh, stay there. And then actually, I, 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 once I made it clear I wasn't going to do it, then they gave me loads of work afterwards and gave me a, my own little show and everything else, right. which was marvellous of them. But I have been back since and done some guest appearances. Yeah. And who knows, Tom, exclusively on your radio station and show, guys. Right. I can't tell you. <laughs> well, well uh, that's about as useful as you usually are. Thanks very yeah, much. Well, if you carry on watching the present series, oh, that's all I'm going to say. This is a bit like line of duty here, yeah. Theo. You're, you're holding <laughs> us in suspenders <laughs> here. Yeah. Can I say, Theo, I'm absolutely delighted that you brought it up about going stale. We're just wondering how we're going to break this to Tom. <laughs> has it really been that long no <laughs> I always remember the famous Terry Wogan quote it's better to be gone and not forgotten than forgotten and not gone 
that's a great, great quote. No, it's, I, I, and I'd also bought various other businesses. I bought Robert Dyers. I started Boo. And, you know, it takes, it's, it's not just, the, you know, six weeks of filming. It's actually the follow-up of, of mentoring all these businesses that yeah. you've invested yeah. in. So it's, it's a, there's a lot involved afterwards. Yeah. But, and for me, that, that was becoming a little bit tricky. But, 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 you know, I still go back and join myself there and, um, as I said, watch this space. Well, Theo, it's been brilliant having you on this morning. We really appreciate it. And um, Willie will buy us all a glass of rosé when we're over in Mallorca in the summer. I'm looking forward to it. It's been a pleasure to be on with you, gentlemen. Thank you, Theo, and I definitely look forward to meeting you. Thank you very much. All the best. Take care, guys. Thank you, Theo. Coming up next, it's The Board You Can't Afford with Hunter and Hockey. If you're looking for some business insight or have a general business question for Tom and Willie, please email gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk or join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag GoHunterAndHockey. The board you couldn't afford. This is the Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. Welcome back as we go into the boardroom with Hunter and Hockey and answer your calls with business advice, insight and inspiration. It's the board you can't afford. If you have any questions you want read out in the show or wish to speak directly to Tom and Willie, you can email gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk and you can join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag GoHunterAndHockey. On the phone lines now, we have Dom Hogan, who's the owner of, is it OP's or OP's Emporium? OP's Emporium. OP's Emporium. (laughs) I think I've been struggling today. What's your question for Tom and Willie? Um, So some people know that we've recently just acquired an investment from a dragon on the show Dragon's Den. Um, So we've had some great publicity um, and the business is going massively. Um, We manufacture our own range of uh, pet products as well as have a physical store. Um, A lot of people have been asking me recently about, you know, potentially opening more stores across the country. Um, So I was looking kind of for advice about how it's kind of best to go about that. Is it potentially kind of running them myself, you know, starting local, um, you know, with like kind of more stores within the kind of slightly greater area or would they be looking at potentially franchising stores across the country? What do you think would be best? Great, great <laughs> question, morning, Tom. Tom. It's, it's, it's Tom here. So um, give your business a wee plug. How do we and where do we find you? Um, so at the moment we are in Glasgow. We're in Hillington Park. We've got our physical store there, which is attached to our factory. And you can get us um, online as well on our own website, opisemporium.co.uk. And on top of that, we also have a handful of trade partners. So check out your local independent pet shop um, and they should stock some Opie's goodies as well. And if they don't, tell them to get on it because they <laughs> definitely want to be stocking our stuff. Get on it. I love it. I love it, Dom. <laughs> so, so what I would say is if you're thinking of growing through your own stores, you need to do the first few yourself hundred percent because then you'll learn by doing you'll understand how it works you'll understand every nut and bolt of your business and then i mean franchising works for some businesses it doesn't work for others Mm -hmm. it certainly um diminishes the amount of capital you've got to commit to the business but with that you cede some of the control so I can't give you 100% what what you should do, but you should just sit down and say, a franchise gives me this, but it costs me that, and therefore you can come up 
with your own decision. Good, good. So I, like, I like that kind of initial thought as well as try, trial out a couple first and kind of nail out the nitty gritty, as you say. Yes. Um, and just kind of see what works best. That's, um, that's really good advice. Dom, it's Willie here. I, I couldn't um, have summed up better. I think Tom's told you exactly the same approach that I would have. Uh, and I think you you will know when the time is right. You know that uh, yeah. if, if if people are clamouring for your products and it would be impossible f- for you to to roll out the amount of shops, then obviously you would look at franchising. But I would start up slowly, get my own places, build up your reputation for the products, and then make that big decision when it comes. So was that helpful for you? Yeah, no, that's definitely really helpful for me. Thank you so much. It's, um, and, and keep in touch. Let us know how you're getting on. Yeah, I will do. I think, I think I think Dom as well really invest in your digital side of your business as well because there you can capture the full margin you've got the full margin there and you can trade direct with your customer you can get to know your customer really well and do that but as as Willie says keep in touch with the show brilliant let us know how you're getting on and then when you've got hundreds of shops (laughs) coming Come and come and tell us. I will do. I look forward to hopefully. Especially if you need, especially if you need air conditioning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll definitely keep you posted on that one then. <laughs> good luck. All right, Thanks, good luck. Guys. Thanks for calling. Thanks right. a lot. Bye. Well, what a brilliant show we've had with Theo. Some fantastic dragons advice for you. Of course, we're still looking for ideas on how to build on the show's success. So please keep firing them in and remember the best ones we receive will get a copy of the Scottish Enlightenment book by Arthur Herman, signed by Tom and Willie. Full details on how to enter and for all you need to know about today's show and how you can get involved and connect, visit thisisgo.co.uk. Don't forget, you can put questions to Tom and Willie by emailing gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk and you can join the Twitter conversation at hashtag GoHunterAndHockey. The Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. Listen anytime, anywhere, wherever you get your podcasts. podcasts.